You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Bottom of the Pyramid One of the most popular visions of scalability is C.K. Prahalad and Stuart Hart's concept of doing business at the bottom of the pyramid, the so-called BOP markets, the roughly 4 billion people living on less than $1,500 a year. The concept was popularized in several academic papers in 2002 and subsequently by Prahalad's book, The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. Prahalad argues that the poor, defined as people living on less than $2 a day, represent a market size of $13 trillion. Alan Hammond, Vice President of the World Resources Institute, believes it may be as much as $15 trillion a year. Estimates in the book The Next $4 billion, drawing on data and income from 110 countries and standardized expenditure data from 36 countries across the globe, have lower estimates at $5 trillion. But still, this is by no means trivial. Much of this colossal market will remain untapped, however, unless business learns to do business differently. In order to access the bottom of the pyramid, argue Prahalad and Hart, several myths need to be busted. For example, contrary to popular belief, BOP markets are brand conscious and connected, and BOP customers accept new technology. However, in order to conduct a business in these markets, companies have to create the capacity to consume by making products affordable, accessible and available. The provision by Hindustan Lever of single-serve sachets of shampoo in India is now a classic and much debated case in point. Building trust is also a prerequisite. I remember asking Muhammad Yunus, why the Grameen Bank had succeeded where so many other commercial banks had failed in doing business with the poor. His answer was that he began the bank in an area that he had lived and worked in for many years. He had built up social capital and earned their trust. As a result, he was able to grow a $2.5 billion banking enterprise with over 7 million active clients affecting 35 million family members. Most remarkably, Grameen's loan repayment rate is over 98% and borrowers of the bank own 90% of its shares. By 2007, the microcredit model had scaled to over 50 countries, with more than 3,000 microcredit institutions reaching over 130 million clients. Of these, 93 million, up from 7.6 million in 1997, were among the poorest when they took their first loan. And of these poorest clients, 85%, or nearly 80 million, were women. The BOP model has been hotly debated and criticised. Speaking to me in 2008, Hart conceded two main problems. One is that companies will take existing unsustainable polluting or toxic products and strip some of the cost out and take it into these underserved markets and then just do a lot more environmental damage. The second criticism, captured by Anil Kanani in The Misfortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid, is that companies are entering rural villages and urban slums and shanty towns 
and just selling stuff to poor people that they don't really need. Extractive products that are just going to take what little cash they have in their pockets, extract wealth, not create it, and at the end of the day do more harm than good from the standpoint of poverty alleviation. On this point, Eunice told me, Our primary responsibility is to lift the poor at the bottom of the pyramid rather than see it as an opportunity to make money. So we should not look at them as consumers of our product. We should see them as potential producers, potential creative people who can take charge of their own life and transform it. Taking these concerns into account, Hart, with Eric Simanis and others at Cornell University, has been leading an initiative to create a BOP protocol, or BOP 2.0 model. Hart describes it as a new business process for actually engaging in those communities, building trust and then co-creating businesses. There is an attitude difference that embodies humility. It's a co-creation methodology rather than a talk-down imposition where the presumption is rich people are smarter, poor people are dumb and are victims. You have to change your mindset and think we could be partners and colleagues or we could actually work together to develop a business that combines the best of both. We could bring incredible next-generation clean technology but there's a lot of local knowledge that if we combine those together, imagine what sort of interesting business we could create that could make a better way to live. And as an example of scalability in this approach, Stuart Hart cites a BOP protocol initiative in the US with Ascension Health, which is the third largest hospital corporation in the United States, focused on the 50 million people in the US with no health insurance. Another example of BOP scalability is the Tata Nano, the $2,500 car launched in 2008 in India. The mission began back in 2003 when Ratan Tata, chairman of the Tata Motors Group and the $50 billion Tata conglomerate, set a challenge to build a people's car. Tata gave an engineering team three requirements for the new vehicle. It should be low cost, adhere to regulatory requirements, and achieve performance targets such as fuel efficiency and acceleration capacity. By design, it is small and eco-efficient, and while many wring their hands over the environmental impacts of a billion Indians driving a car, no one has an ethical right to deny the same access to individual mobility that virtually the whole population of the developed world enjoys. Other big companies have also got involved. For example, Philips is actively targeting rural India with two products, the smokeless stove and lighting products in the Philips Sustainable Model in Lighting Everywhere range, also called Smile. At Philips, we have a strategy in place to address the needs of consumers at the bottom of the pyramid, said Philips India CEO Murali Sivaraman. We look at this section of society as a viable market and have developed products catering to their needs. Similarly, Envirofit, a spin-out from the University of Colorado, claims that its $20 stoves cut smoke and toxic emissions by 80% and halve the amount of fuel that is needed. Its goal is to sell 10 million in the developing world over the next five years. According to Simon Bishop, head of policy at the Shell Foundation, which seed-funded the Envirofit venture, everything we do is about applying business thinking. Blessed unrest. 
Another way to think about scalability is as a much more grassroots movement. Indeed, Paul Hawken, in his book Blessed Unrest, subtitled How the Largest Movement in the World Came Into Being and Why No One Saw It Coming, suggests that they have already gone to scale on sustainability and responsibility in one sense. The title comes from a quote of Martha Graham to Agnes de Mille in Dance to the Piper. And I quote, There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. You have to keep open and aware directly to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. There is no satisfaction, whatever at any time. There is only a queer, divine satisfaction, a blessed unrest, that keeps us marching and makes us more alive. Drawing inspiration from this idea, Hawken believes that in this movement without a centre, there are over one or maybe even two million organisations working towards ecological sustainability and social justice. The scale of this movement for change has gone largely undetected, he believes, because it is not formalised. It is a movement without central control or appointed leaders. He describes it as follows. The movement can't be divided because it is so atomized, a collection of small pieces loosely joined. It forms, dissipates and then regathers quickly, without central leadership, command or control. Rather than seeking dominance, this unnamed movement strives to disperse concentrations of power. It has been capable of bringing down governments, companies and leaders through witnessing, informing and massing. The quickening of the movement in recent years has come about through information technologies becoming increasingly accessible and affordable to people everywhere. Its clout resides in its ideas, not in force. Andres Edwards argues that we have gone from a sustainability movement to a sustainability revolution. He bases this on three distinct phases, genesis, critical mass and diffusion. He notes that, and I quote, whereas movements tend to have narrower objectives and are led by a charismatic leader such as Mahatma Gandhi, social revolutions have wider objectives and are led by a large and diverse number of individuals. Hawken sees this disaggregated collective acting in defense of the earth and society, saying that the shared activity of hundreds of thousands of non-profit organizations can be seen as humanity's immune response to toxins like political corruption, economic disease and ecological degradation. A key insight from the metaphor is that when we are sick we feel the disease, but we seldom feel the immune system working away in the background to restore health. In the same way, the mass movement for sustainability and responsibility has been operating under the political and economic radar, focusing on damage control and restoration of vitality to our societies and ecosystems. In an audacious attempt to collate and categorize the multifarious organizations working to bring about positive change, Hawken set up WISER, which stands for the World Index of Social and Environmental Responsibility. It is a collaborative platform for the movement. The first step was setting up wiser.org, 
the world's largest free and editable international directory of NGOs and socially responsible organizations, numbering over 110,000 in 243 countries, territories and sovereign lands in 2008. There are also parallel sites planned for wiser business and wiser government. Collaborative Social Entrepreneurship A related movement that we have already introduced is the social enterprise movement. At the heart of the social entrepreneurial ethic is the achievement of scale. Catalyst Bill Drayton believes this is not only possible, but is happening already. He says, To question whether social entrepreneurs can achieve large-scale change is to doubt the existence of Florence Nightingale, Maria Montessori, William Wilberforce, Faisal Abed, Jimmy Wales, or the 2,700 Ashoka Fellows. But how does this happen? What do social entrepreneurs know about scalability that we could learn from? According to Drayton, part of the answer lies in their ability to mobilize other change agents. He describes it as follows. Every social entrepreneur is a mass recruiter of local change makers. Here is one of the few significant structural differences between the social and business entrepreneur. The social entrepreneur has no interest in capturing a market and digging a moat. Instead, the goal, indeed, is to change the world. The way social entrepreneurs do this almost always is to make their idea as understandable, attractive, safe, and supported as necessarily precise so that local people in community after community after community will recognize that the idea would be hugely valuable to their community and also judge that they could make that idea fly. The moment one or several local people make that decision, stand up and champion the idea, they have become local change makers. They will disrupt local patterns, they will recruit others to be change makers, and a few will later become large-scale social entrepreneurs in their own right. A second way social entrepreneurs achieve scale is by collaborating with each other on their business. We have already seen how Freeplay collaborated with innovators in the medical industry to come up with the fetal heart rate monitor, and how A Little World collaborated with numerous technology and banking partners to develop and deliver its microbanking services. Similarly, we saw how the Grameen Bank has been collaborating with French food company Danone since 2006 to fight malnutrition in Bangladesh by producing a yogurt enriched with crucial nutrients at a price of around six cents, which even the poorest can afford. Social media sites like Amazi are also allowing social entrepreneurs to collaborate. Amazi calls itself the Global Action Network and cites successful groups that have engaged its members in building an IT learning center in Sri Lanka or planning meetings of internet entrepreneurs in Zurich or ensuring the complete supply of running water in small South African villages. Similarly, the Mayflower Foundation in Lagos in Nigeria aims to work as a coordinated synergistic and cooperative body for pooling and integrating social development and CSR efforts to directly impact up to 100,000 citizens and as many as 300,000 indirectly. Drayton concludes that 
Once there are several hundred leading social entrepreneurs in a field across the continents, one can be confident that a jump to the next paradigm in the field is near.